Welcome to Between the Covers, the show for readers and writers and lovers of books. I'm Stephanie, and I'm a publisher at Red Penguin Books, where we publish books of all types and genres. So whether you have a book in your head, a manuscript ready to go, or even 300 sheets of loose leaf shoved in a drawer, and believe me, I get an envelope with loose leaf at least once a month, visit us at redpenguinbooks.com and unleash your inner author. I'm so excited to be joined today by two authors have absolutely unleashed themselves and we are spanning the globe tonight. Uh, tonight we have Lindsay Kinsella who is the author of The Heart of Pangea and Lindsay is hailing from Scotland. And then Karen Strock, the author of Married Women Who Love Women and More. We have two book covers there because we want to make sure you find this important book. But first, we're going to meet Lindsay, and our author writes of his book. Robin has a vivid imagination, even for a 12-year-old, vivid enough to create herself a companion. But Ed isn't your ordinary imaginary friend. Ed is a dimetrodon, an ancient beast from a forgotten age. When her mother falls ill, Robin and Ed delve into her subconscious, to the prehistoric kingdom of Pangea in search of a cure. But in a world of dinosaurs, pirates, and ancient magic, can they find what they seek? Can they even save themselves from the creatures which inhabit this mysterious land? The heart of Pangea brings the wonders of paleontology to a vivid and magical fantasy setting. In this novel, the reader will dig up scientific discoveries and be gripped by a story rich with the meaning of friendship, family, and love. Please welcome author Lindsay Kinsella. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, so thrilled to have you. And I'm just sorry that my children are a little grown at this point because <laughs> Boy, oh boy, a, a book about paleontology would have been tops, tops on their list, but my youngest, alas, is 19. So, <laughs> so tell me first, how did you get your start in writing? Is it because you're a father of three? Is that what got you started? Yeah, there was there was an element of that. So I think I sort of, I mean, I I, I started out really, the, the paleontology was my original inspiration. That's what started me off on the course to write my first book and I certainly I wrote The Lazarus Taxa which was my first novel with the intention of writing something for my kids um, and in the end I wrote a very realistic sort of tense mystery thriller and I got carried away with it and there was you know blood and gore and violent deaths and it, it, it wasn't suitable for the kids by the time <laughs> I was finished. So, yeah, The Heart of Pangea was very much my sort of attempt to rectify that and go back to the original plan and write a book that, that my kids could read. Oh, you're so uh, funny. You are not the, the first person who has started off thinking they were writing a book for kids and suddenly said, oh, yeah, I think I just read it, wrote an adult novel here. We'll have to go back <laughs> and do that again. Yeah, I think... Um, I think you're a paleontologist? Not no, I'm I'm just a, I'm just a massive geek. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Them of my best friends. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I, I think that's just amazing. So you just love this. See, I, I live in New York, so I think I'm a massive geek too, because the Museum of Natural History was where my one of my favorite places in New York. Absolutely. So next mm -hmm. time you're here, you and I'll go through that whole of dinosaurs together. Absolutely. That that place is um, that place is on my bucket list. Um, I did manage to go to the London um, Natural History Museum. A couple oh, of years. yes, I've been to that. A little bit closer for me. And it's, <laughs> it's amazing. Absolutely. So this is not your your first rodeo, shall we say? This is not your first book. No, this is this is my second now. Um, I, st I still sort of feel like a newbie. If I'm honest. <laughs> well, um, especially since this is different than your first, you were going for a different audience, right? Yeah, I think I think that contributes to that because it's not just it's it's a different audience, it's a different genre, um, it's a different tone entirely. Um, it's it's yeah, yeah I, I I didn't make life easy for myself there. Now, how old are your own kids? Did any of them read this yet? Um, so my my oldest is ten, and he has he has started on it. Um, and to be honest, I think ten is probably the sort of lower end right, right, of the right. It's, it's hard to age a book. I don't know if, if you know if anyone here has, has, has written a book for sort of a younger audience before, but trying to decide what category it fits into age-wise is really difficult. It is. Um, but, you know, as as a mom of three, uh, I, I'm not a writer of uh, youth literature, but as a mom, I remember how hard it was to even find what is correct grade level. Like, they would say one thing, and I'd say... Yeah, that one's kind of babyish for my son or this one is oh this one's a little bit better but it gets a little too dark and scary it's it's hard to to pinpoint so i'm sure as an author it's hard to pinpoint it's, it's tricky and i think because i mean i i didn't didn't entirely sort of pick any age range while i was writing it so i sort of got to the end and sort of had to think you know what age does this fit? And you have to, you know, you've got the writing age to consider and then you have the content and then you have things that there are grey areas. So, I mean, obviously you read out in the blurb and, and the, the mother has cancer. Um, that is inevitably quite a dark subject material, um, even if it is wrapped up in a sort of quirky, funny fantasy world. Um, there's there's a dark undertone to that there. Um, and that things like that. How do you how do you don't, use that? Don't you yeah. find that your characters write their own story? Do you mm -hmm. find that the, the characters take you where they want to go? They, 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 they do, they do. And I think that that makes it more difficult as well. Because sometimes you have a character who wants to do something a little more grown up than you. <laughs> <laughs> you have to whip them back in place and say, no, no, no. This is a kid's yes. Behave yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, I think I think that the point of that that I was getting to was that it's, it's sort of sort of top end of middle grade, bottom end of young adult is where I would say the sort of starting level is. Gotcha. Um, but I, I think it's sort of complex enough emotionally that a, a, a sort of even an adult reader could read it. Yeah. Um, which is sort of what I was shooting for. Oh, absolutely! You know, some of the best uh, young people's books, adults are reading them all the time. You know, I, when when my kids were younger, I loved reading books that were probably meant for not me, but the best ones, just like, quite frankly, the best television shows and movies that are for kids have a little underlying, a little gifty for the parents mm -hmm. through them, shall we say.
If the book is good, it's good. I did a children's book, what I thought was a children's book, and the parents were skimming it before giving it to their children. And they said they got so involved, they had to read the whole thing before they would let the kids have it. That's exactly yeah. right. A good book is a good book. And uh, we adults don't always want adult themes, shall we say? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I love that you have, you know, the paleontology aspect, which is so huge, especially for those parents or young people who are geeks, as you called yourself. Um, that's just so fabulous. But also that you have real, raw human emotion. I mean, a mother and uh, tragic circumstances and, you know, kids can relate to that. That's so important. You know, that's, yeah, that's I think huge. So. And um, I, th I think that the sort of the, the paleontology aspect, I think, was something that I really wanted to bring forward because I think that it's it's so fascinating and I think that most people just sort of have, have scratched the surface. They've seen what's in, you know, perhaps Jurassic Park or, or maybe even walking with dinosaurs or something like that. And it's just there's, you know, that, that that's like that's like a fraction of a percent of all the really cool stuff that there is to bring forward. And yeah, it's just it's endless subject material, um, which is good for me. Um, I can I can keep churning these out forever at this rate. <laughs> Absolutely. Bring me a little bit into your writing process because you know you've got a couple of hurdles, shall we say. One certainly is just being a fiction writer in general. I mean, that's just enormous and all the creativity. Uh, two, world building. Your entire story takes place in a world that is not Scotland, or at least not Scotland now. So you had a whole lot of world building. You had the scientific aspect, because even though you're writing fiction, I'm sure that there was a whole lot of research to make sure that kids would find your book is not conflicting with what they were learning in their science classes. There's a lot of a lot of things to juggle. So bring me into how did this go? Did this, you know, was there a flash of lightning that you started writing or are you like a charts and graphs kind of a writer? So I, I sort of I, I, I like to plan things out as much as possible beforehand. And that plan is normally in tatters by about halfway through. But I at least like to have a roadmap to base it on. Um, and, and what I'll often do is I'll, I'll, I'll write the story, I'll create the world, and then I'll go away and do some research and find out if what I've written is nonsense or not, and then yeah. sort of double back on it. Um, I think it was a little easier with this book compared to my first book. My first book was set in the actual real world late Cretaceous North America. So... The research there was quite intensive. I had to know what was the plant life like and the atmosphere and the climate and, you know, um, some fairly dry research in that book, if I'm honest. Um, so it was a little easier that in a completely new fantasy world, it, it didn't really matter if things like that were accurate. Mm. It exists inside a little girl's imagination. It's allowed to be nonsense. And, and quite often it was sort of intentionally nonsense. I think where I did want to make sure that things were right was um, the animals themselves. So, you know, we obviously have a, a Dimetrodon as the, you know, as the, the sort of main protagonist. We have a, a swathe of dinosaurs and prehistoric mammals. Um, and particularly with things like, I think there's a dinosaur called Spinosaurus, which is a very good example, because about every two years, there's a new research paper that comes out, which completely transforms how this thing looks. And it's sort of a running joke in the paleo community that it's just, you know, every time a new paper comes out, they go, oh, God, it's a Spinosaurus again. Um, 
So trying to keep up to date so that by the time the book was released, it wasn't already outdated. Yeah. Um, that was quite important research-wise. And there were a few redrafts to sort of redesign some characters within the book as, as new science emerged. That's amazing. And and I must admit to you, this is the first time that when I was introducing a, a an author and a book, I ever had to just have Dimetrodon just roll off my tongue. That was a... <laughs> <laughs> My, it was a first. I have interviewed hundreds of authors and you are the first one that has put me under the microscope to have to pronounce Dimetrodon that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your book cover. So striking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, I was I was actually, I was really pleased with this cover because this, I was, I, I finally sort of had the resources and the contacts to be able to do what I wanted to do with the first cover that I, I wasn't really able, and that was to hire what's called a paleo artist. Mm. That's basically an artist who has sort of underlying experience of the science of paleontology, and they specialize in recreating, um, you know, sort of prehistoric animals, whether that be dinosaurs or or dimetrodons. And I I really wanted to do that for the first book, and I might at some point redo the cover and, and you know go back and do that wow. just because you know the science of the paleontology is such an important aspect of what I try and do and to have a cover that's absolutely paleo accurate because it's it's done by someone who's an expert in their field absolutely um, I, that was, I that think was so it's very sweet that cover the, the the being on the cover Oh, absolutely. What did you call that artist? The type of artist? A paleo artist. A paleo artist. A paleo artist. Yeah. Oh, I'm learning a lot today. Dimetrodon, paleo artist. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. Paleo artists are by sort of, you know, just, just due to the nature of their work. There aren't many of them. It's, it's such a such a niche little sort of bracket mm -hmm. that exists with him because you need someone who has both the artistic ability to to, to draw and like knowledge. that in the word for me too yeah yeah no that's fabulous <laughs> and now i know next time a dinosaur book crosses my my uh path <laughs> what i'm looking for i also love i've i've read recently that the dinosaurs were much more colorful than we expect you know we we see uh, the bones in a museum for so many years they made all of the dinosaurs kind of look gray and recently I've seen um, that studies have been done and more information has come to light that the dinosaurs were actually much more brightly colored than we were you know think about them in that gray sense so I absolutely adore this look and boy He'd stick out in a jungle, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think there, there were sort of two elements to that. I think the, the one element is, is you're right, there has been a lot of science recently. Um, they've sort of they've, they've discovered methods of, of identifying pigments under a microscope. So even though we can't see the colour, they can tell what colour a lot of things were. Yeah. So there is a lot of science for, for colourful aspects. But then I also had the element of it's you know, it exists within a young girl's imagination. So, mm. you know, you can sort of dial up the colour a little more than I would if it was, you know, say a science fiction novel. Um, and so, yeah, things things could just be a little more vibrant and a little more exciting than, than maybe they otherwise would have been. 
I love that. I love that. Well, tell me, what is next on your agenda? Are you writing a sequel to this, a sequel to the first one, doing something totally new? What's your next project? So uh, while I do very much have plans for sequels for my first two books, um, I sort of have a, an itch to scratch on, on something else first. Um, and I sort of flip-flopped a little, so I'm now over to writing something very dark and adult. Um, and it's a sort of near-future um, sort of climate change story and it's, it, it follows the crew of a, an illegal whaling ship who gets stranded in the Arctic and it's sort of a survival tale. The plan is it will be a relatively short book compared to my others but that was also the plan with the last one. And, <laughs> and, and, and sometimes as, as Karen said sometimes those characters of yours they dictate what happens there. So you might think that it's going to be a short book and they decide they have more story to tell. Isn't they, that they get carried away. There's a, I've already got carried away with world building on this. So we'll see. It'll be a trilogy before I know it. Well, after all that world building, it's not a bad idea to go back and write a, a sequel because you've gotten a lot of research and work under your belt. I have no doubt. Thank you so much. Uh, our next guest today, Karen Strock, is the author of Married Women Who Love Women and More. And our author writes, this accessible book offers support and advice for women in heterosexual marriages who discover or who are coming to terms with their lesbianism or bisexuality. It also offers guidance for the single lovers of married women. In sharing the author's personal story, as well as the descriptive experiences of others, this book provides validation and empowerment to multitudes of women in their search for their true identities. In this third edition of Married Women Who Love Women, the author gives women ways in which to structure and restructure their lives and their families after they realize their same gender sexuality. Chapters consider questions such as how women make this discovery, reactions from loved ones, and the outcomes for marriages and families. Updated throughout with contemporary understandings of sexuality and gender, this book includes a wealth of information, fresh narratives, and stories offering insight into women's experiences across the country. This is an essential read for women and their partners who are discovering their true identity, as well as therapists, helping professionals, and students of women's studies, gender studies, sexuality studies, and LGBTQ studies programs. I'm delighted to welcome author Karen Strock. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, what a nice introduction. Oh, thrilled <laughs> to have you, and, and such an important book as well. Absolutely. You know, as I was reading the description, you know, I'm thinking of, wow, just a few short years ago, there was no guidance, no book, and people were lucky if they even had a confidant or a friend that they can count on. And I'm so delighted that they can go to Amazon and press a button and and have your wise words, narratives, um, the way you explain that it's good, not just for the women, but people who are in their circle. Understanding. When, when the first edition came out, women were buying it and hiding it under their jackets and changing the book cover so nobody would see the title. And now everyone is buying it because it's an interesting topic and it's it's out there. I just want to say it has the two covers because it just came out as a classic edition, which I'm thrilled with. 
but I don't think that picture is up on the uh, computer. The one yeah. with the uh, sunset. I'm, I'm glad it's to the have same book, whichever cover. Whichever cover you find, that's why we wanted to put two covers there. Whichever yeah. cover you find, grab it. There's, a, there's one chapter on transgenders and the, the classic edition has a few little tweaks in it. But other than that, it's, it's the same book. Exactly. And I'm sure, um, I'm glad you mentioned that there were updated stories. And, you know, this is an evolving story mm -hmm. for society as well as those women. And I'm so glad you're in tune with the fact that the book might need a fourth edition coming up. You know, it, it's something that might be in flux so that you can change mm -hmm. things up. So when did the first edition come out? When did you realize there's a need and I have been tasked? Because writing a book like this really is, is something that you are tasked to do. I, I believe I was chosen to, to write this book. And let, let me just share this story. When the first edition came out, I was doing a talk and this woman came up to me clutching the book and sobbing. I could still see her face in my, in my mind. And she said, I would have come through any weather, any conditions to thank you. Your book saved my life. She thought she was the only married woman ever to have fallen in love with another woman and didn't know where to turn or who to talk to. And she thought the best thing she could do for her husband and children was kill herself. And she had planned her suicide for a night that her family was going to be home late. She was work, walking home from work for what she thought was the last time. And she passed a bookstore and they were just putting this book in the window. How synchronistic is that? She saw the title and she knew she wasn't the only one and she changed her mind. And even now when I tell this story, and this is 25 years later, I get goose pimples. Oh my gosh. So I, I've had stories, I've had um, emails and letters from women around the world. Thank you for writing my story. I highlighted every word until the whole book was yellow and, and things like that. So I believe I was chosen to do it because at one point in college, I was told I was not a writer. And now, seven books later. <laughs> you I had a certainly are a writer, that's for sure. I had a secret dream of being a writer, maybe for short stories. And my professor, everybody got A's and D's and I got a C. And I said, well, what can I do to improve my work? And he said, honey, some people are writers and some aren't. And you're not a writer. And I believed him. I didn't pick up a pen for 15 years. And then Robert Redford came to town. The, the actor was doing a movie, The Natural, and I was an extra on the set for a month. And every night I came home, everybody asked how it went. How did you know where to go? What to do? How did they dress you? And I said to a friend of mine, I'm so tired of telling the same story over and over again. And she said, well, just write everything that down, you know, down that happened and I'll make it into a story for you. Because I had told her I was not a writer. And what she did is she relieved me of my angst and I was able to sit down and write it all out. And he gave it to her and she said, Karen, this is a story and it's finished. And Women's Day agreed with her and they published it. It was called um, uh, Me and Robert Redford was the title of their this story. So that started my writing career. Oh, my gosh. I love that. I, I'm, I'm very much an eclectic writer. So I've written a book. I was chuckling when you were talking about your book, uh, Lindy, because I wrote a book for ch for children. Secret Survivors, and that's the one that the, the adults have taken over. Mm. And I've written a book on writing, um, what to know before, during, and after writing a book. And it goes through all the things that I went through, the mistakes I made. I was invited to be on the Oprah show and I turned it down. Big, big mistake. Oh. <laughs> big, big, big mistake. Because they were doing a um, a show called, I had 
I had a horrendous secret and was estranged from my family, and then they forgave me. And I couldn't go and say it's a horrendous secret. What it is is a, another another dimension. Right, right. And I, what I should have done is gone on and said, well, some people think it's a horrendous secret. It's just another dimension of the same person. Right, right. So, I mean, things like that I, I have in my book on writing, mistakes I made that they can not make, that they shouldn't make. Mm. And it just... Um, it's difficult when you're an eclectic writer because you don't get a following. Mm. Although now I'm coming out with a second mystery to one that takes place in Coney Island. So I'm just waiting for my publisher. And I also have a, a ghost story that I wrote about a 13 year old ghost who just came to me. Wow. I really feel it's like the books I've written, I, I've chosen to write them. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you and you go between fiction and this is obviously nonfiction and, and you go very well. Well, I'm thinking back to your story about your college professor. And I'd like to wonder how many books those people who got A's and B's, you've had seven books and they've released none. So your professor obviously <laughs> doesn't know who's a good writer. <laughs> good question. Yeah. Well, whenever I do a talk, I tell that to people. Never listen to someone who says you can't or you're not. That's you right. are who you want to be. You can do what you want to. Some people can do a first draft and have a book. I might have to do 20 or 30 drafts, but it's, you know, nobody sees all of the paper in the wastebasket. They see what you hand them. Absolutely. Yeah. But this, but book, you know, your, your story about the woman who saw this book in the, in the bookstore window, you know, mm -hmm. I always, I, I'm so privileged to speak with many, many authors, hundreds, in fact, and um, and we all kind of agree on one thing. We want our book to change someone's life, even if it's just one. And most mm -hmm. of the time, we never get the privilege of finding out who that person is. We have to just go and kind of go on faith that it has been life-changing. But for you, you know the person. That's yeah. such a gift to you as a as a writer to actually know. And you know, statistically, if this one person's life was changed, how many other lives were changed? I know. Yeah. Unbelievable. But when I when I wrote the book, I was very torn. Like, did I have the right to put it out into the world? Would my family be safe? Would I be safe? Because this was years ago when, you know, it was just a taboo topic. Right. And then it came to me. I was supposed to write the book and it needed to be out there. So I stopped being worried and it came out after um, I think it was 59 rejections. People, people were afraid mm -hmm. to take the book on. They felt it, you know, some people felt it wasn't enough of a topic. I went to dinner with a friend and I told her about the book and she said, Oh, I wouldn't waste my time on something like that. How many people is it going to involve? Anyway, I dropped her off at home. I came home and my phone is ringing. She says, Karen, write that damn book. I said, what happened to change your mind? She came home and her husband told her his best friend had just called him. His wife had left him for another woman. Wow. It's very, very, it's all, it's all over there. It's, it's more it's, common it's, than people think. <laughs> absolutely. As a matter of fact, I'm just, I'm working on an article now for Ms. Magazine. They have a section called the Ethel about older women. Mm. And it's just, it's, you know, when, when you're shown red, yellow, and blue and asked, what's your favorite color, you're choosing from a limited slate. Right. Women didn't know years ago that they had other options. They just know you're going to marry someone like your daddy. And that's how it was. 
but the book has, uh, after I finished it, I said, okay, I guess that's what I was put here for. And now I'm done. And the next day I was saying, what's my next assignment? <laughs> you know, you are so right, Karen, about the limited choices. You know, I, I think back just a generation before when I was growing up and going to college, the, the choice for women was nurse or teacher. If you if you wanted to have a career, you were going to be a nurse or a teacher or, you know, you can go to secretarial school. That was it. That's the, all we knew. Yeah, that's all we knew. And there are plenty of women who, you know, certainly then, not to mention later in life, said, hey, maybe I wanted to be a microbiologist or maybe I wanted to be a paleontologist or who knows what they wanted to be. But it was never one of the choices, just like your red, yellow and blue. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Tell me something a little bit about the writing of this book, because um, unlike Lindsay's, when we're talking about world building and research, well, you certainly had research. It's a nonfiction book and you've included stories in there. So tell me a little bit about the research into the book as far as wanting very much not to be only one person, the author's story, but to get the narratives of others. How did that go? Well, I started out with an article that I did for Ms. Magazine, and the um, they changed editors, and the second editor didn't want it, so it kind of went into the draw. And I was at a writer's conference, and we were talking about titles that sell books. And I was too lazy to create something new, so I said, well, what about Married Women Who Love Women? Because that's what I had done this article on. And all of a sudden, there was a hush in the room, and I thought, oh, my God, I think I just outed myself. And <laughs> 60 women. I mean, it was a full room. And then a woman raises her hand and she says, how does a woman make that discovery? And then another one raises her hand and says, what kind of men are they married to? And another, how did their children deal with it? And I realized if these women had those questions, everyone has the same questions. And their questions became my chapter titles. And so it just, when I started the book, there was a lot of research. The computer wasn't in my house at the time. And a lot of time spent at the library. And whenever I find an article, I'd say, oh, this would work in the first chapter and in the third chapter and the fifth. So I'd make copies of it and put it in my three different folders for each of these chapters. It was a lot of paper. Um, therapists that I interviewed, psychologists, I had index cards for all of them. The women I interviewed, I had, everyone had their name um, changed. You know, nothing was, um, everything was private for them with all their information on index cards. And it was just, it was a system. I was calling people at three in the morning because they were located in different parts of the country or because they were afraid to speak with other people in their houses. And women said to me, you know, if my husband or my neighbor heard me say the word lesbian, they would shoot my head off with a, you know, with a shotgun. And people were very much afraid. So what happened is I realized that a lot of the people, more educated women were more willing to step forward lesser those with lesser education spoke to me and then afterward they well like you know they were afraid they were really afraid which is very sad yes it is very sad but um, as our world has changed after the first edition a lot of women wrote to me and said well what about the single lovers of married women and so i had to add a chapter on that and and as things evolved and the third edition has a chapter on transgenders because transgenders can be straight, straight or gay, and and their the gender can change, right. you know, when they change. So um, there was just a lot more news, a lot more information. Right. And then I thought, 
What about women who had made their choice to stay or to leave? Mm. Were they, you know, were they pleased with their choice? Were they sorry? So there's another chapter called um, Woulda, Shoulda, Coulda. Oh. And I found some of the women I had interviewed initially, and I found a lot of others. By this time, the computer's out, and I just had to put it out. And, you know, I, I had to stop because I had too many women. Many stories. And some of them were, were satisfied with the choices they made, and others were not. But now when I get letters, you know, I always say to them, you're not alone. There are other people sharing the same stories, walking in your same shoes. That's, and this was how they got their lives to work. Yeah. yeah. That, that alone is a huge gift. Too often, any of us could feel like we are the only person who has ever walked this path. And just knowing that we have a companion on that route, that we are not alone, that we are not even first. And also, like you said, that there are options. You know, I like what you said about the woulda, coulda, shoulda, you know, not even harping on the regret factor, but the fact that not every woman makes the same choices. Even after the realization, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Absolutely. When I, I, I was married for 25 years and I'm sitting and having um, tea with my best friend. I looked across the table and I thought, oh my God, I'm in love with this woman. And I mean, I knew nobody in the gay community, even living in New York. I, I just, that was not my world. And um, my feelings were not reciprocated. And I went on a quest to find out, was it her or was it me? Mm. And I met other women who told me their stories and, and they shared their stories because I told them mine. And that's how I found a lot of the women I interviewed. Then I started getting um, calls from across the country and it turned out that women, I had put some flyers out in women's bookstores and I put some out even in movie theaters and in grocery stores, you know, the little tear-offs. And people were sending them to their friends and to their relatives across the country because they knew that these women needed support. And I just reached, I don't know how many countries, you know, the interviewees were not all from, from here. Right, right. But it's just... Um, what a journey. What a journey. It was a journey. Yeah. And I, I'm still in my marriage. I'm 50. I'm married now 59 years. I have to say that I'm in a redefined relationship with my husband. You know, I'm totally out to my family. They understand and they know. And I love them all. I love the way you termed that a redefined relationship that there you do have these options. Once you come to this realization, it's not, you're in this box or you're in this box. You could redefine relationships. Yeah. And that then that alone, someone out there needed to hear that tonight. You know, just yeah. as, as I know that people like that woman needed to see your book in the bookstore window. Someone needs to hear this. Even though the world has much more transparency than it did when your first edition came out, not every woman is in a situation of transparency and Look at, look at our country. Not even every state in our country has transparency. Um, you and I happen to be living here in New York, um, but certainly not all of our viewers are in places where this book can be sold without the paper bag that uh, you were talking about. I get that. I get that. But the world has come a long way with thanks to writers like you with great thanks to writers like you. So we've had a lot of ways to write, whether we're, we're imagining things, 
or whether we're interviewing people. Of course, I, I think that Lindsay would have loved to have interviewed a Dimitrodidon. <laughs> I think that would have been phenomenal if he could. Um, tell me a little bit about writing for our viewers. You know, we have people who watch the show who are readers and we love our readers and we want them to read your books for sure. But we also have people who watch who are writers. And they say that 90% of the population wants to write a book, but only a small percentage actually does it. You two have done it multiple times. You know, between the two of you, we have multiple, multiple books. So give me a little bit of a, a tip you would share with our writers out there. Lindsay, what would you say to a prospective writer watching our show today? Um, I, again, I do very much feel like a newbie in here. So um, <laughs> take my advice with a pinch of salt. I, I don't know what I'm talking about, people. Um, I, don't know, I, I, I think for me, I think the, 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 the toughest hurdle to get past from that first book, and I think where I sort of understand a lot of people sort of give up, is sort of somewhere around the end of the first draft, when you read it back and you think this this is terrible this sucks um and it probably does <laughs> I, I think what's hard to realize when it's just you alone and you you know with your laptop um is that every other right there that's ever written anything at the end of the first draft it has also sucked um and I think, you know, it's easy to, uh, you know, I almost was at that stage myself, first draft, my first book. I was like, this this is awful. Like, well, I should probably not bother. Um, when when Michelangelo made the, the statue of David, people asked him what he did. And he said he took this large, was it granite? I forgot. <laughs> took this large piece of granite and he chiseled, chiseled away everything that wasn't David. And then he was left. And it's this is what a writer has to do. You have to put it all down on paper, and a lot of it could be crap. But once you put it down, you can take it away. If you don't put it down, you have nothing to to clean up. No, that's very very true. An editor can't add stuff; they can only take away things. You right. know, just like that that sculptor of David, uh, he didn't have like silly putty to add more stuff to it. That would have looked pretty pretty darn bad and Lindsay please okay. do not discount um the importance of your guidance to new writers very often new writers look to those kind of just just one level above shall we say you know uh, Karen's written seven books here and that's phenomenal and wow you're looking at that saying that's a lot of successes but just like it's very difficult for us to I didn't say they were successful I just said they published <laughs> It's a big difference. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I get that. But but I, I hope people will go to my website and see them. But I, I would like to share when, when you talk about new writers, I say make a list of the positive people in your life and the negative people in your life. And don't share what you're doing with the negative people because they will pull you down so quickly that you'll throw your papers away. Ooh, I like that tip. And I would dare say that that's a tip not just about your new book that you're writing, but probably most facets of your life. Um, yes. Sharing and being that much of an open book with the negative people, it's just not good for you. You know, surround yourself with people who are going to build you up, not tear you down. But yes, with your writing, you're going to tear yourself down enough. I mean, Lindsay's sitting here saying, I got to the end and it was crap. We writers tear ourselves down enough. You don't need that kind of uh, 
support or tear, you know, from somebody else. Lindsay, is your family supportive? You, you mentioned one child finally is up to the age to read. What's going on there? They read these books. Um. Yeah. So my 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 fiance has read the first book. Just getting around to the second one. Um. And and my oldest son is sort of old enough to read um at least the, the newest book. Newest um, book. Yeah, I have sort of I, my parents have read it and a sort of extended family read it. So yeah, they're all they're all very supportive. Um, which is odd because I think I was quite sort of shy about the fact that I was reading a book, um, writing a book to begin with. I didn't really tell anyone until it was pretty much finished and it was, um. Which, yeah, I think I maybe should have done in retrospect because I think people would have been more supportive than I maybe thought they would have been. Well, I'm delighted you have that support. I was uh, interviewing a woman once and I said, uh, does your husband like your book? And she said, he's never read a thing I wrote. And I I almost felt terrible asking the question um, like I asked of you because... I love when people have support. And if it doesn't come from your family, we're so fortunate to have writers groups and all sorts of ways to reach out to other people. Karen, your book is actually yours, but built by a community. So you yes. have yes. people who are in community to get it out, which is really a lot of responsibility for you as, as the mouthpiece of the silent as well. Yeah. I have a friend who's written quite a few books and her children, their adult children, haven't read any of them. She said she's going to put something in her will. It's going to be a test. And if they don't answer the questions, they're not getting their money. Oh, I like that. You have to read her books to answer the questions. I kind of like that, you know, (laughs) This way you could check people out to make sure that they really do it. Well, you know, you two are writers. How many of your friends, whenever you release a book, and this is, you're going to release many, many books over the years. And how many people say, oh, I can't wait to buy it. I can't wait to read it. I'm good. And, and you know, and I've said this to authors, the percentage that actually follows through. People are not very good at follow through. Right. The, the author community is very good about that. So I do hope that the two of you tap in. Uh, Lindsay mentioned uh, what the next project is going to be there. Karen, how about you? Tell us about what's next on the docket. Well, as I said, I have my ghost story, which That's is right. finished. I'm looking for an agent for that one. Okay. And I wrote a story that's a, um, a mystery that takes place in Coney Island, and so many people have asked about it. So I've, I've done a sequel to that which is also waiting to be published. Waiting to be. So those are those are next on the docket. Those weren't finished finished published books yet. They're finished right the writing. Right, right. So they go on to the editor and publishing, yeah. But still to come out. Well, we certainly want all of our audience to be able to follow you and find what you're doing next. Um, You certainly want to follow Lindsay Kinsella. You can find Lindsay's works at uh, his website, his first book, and there's going to be more. So make sure you head on over there and uh, bookmark it. Get this book, uh, The Heart of Pangea, and other books, which are more to come. And then karenstrock.com is where you can find married women who love women, along with other works by Karen, and there's going to be plenty more. So make sure you get over there so you don't miss a single word. And I can't thank the two of you enough for joining me today. 
too Thank fast. you, Stephanie, for doing this. You're wonderful. Oh, my pleasure. And please do me a favor because we are so fortunate to have a huge audience. As things are happening in your world, as you're having events and book signings and things like that, please tag me on social media so we could share it with our audience. Absolutely. Thank you.